Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast where a couple of one-star hosts talk about five, four, and three-star prospects and everything in between. I'm your one-star host, 10K Trevino, and as always, I'm joined by my podcasting partner in crime, Hurricane Martinez Gerard. Your namesake, it's it's a, it's a pretty rainy day today. How is it out there in the IE? Yeah, it's pouring, but it's good. I mean, we finally... Got a little bit of rain in Southern California. I know, like, everything stops in Southern California when you get a little bit of rain. But it's nice. It's seasonal, you know. It's, I haven't seen rain in such a long time. It's, uh, it's, it's nice to kind of get a little bit of that fall weather. And uh, Gerard is a little bit under the weather today, so he's not as uh, boisterous as usual. But I really appreciate uh, him still coming on and, and powering through to put on another show for us. So, Gerard, hats off to you. <laughs> well, we don't know if I'm boisterous or not. You know, we haven't gotten in the podcast really yet. I, I am a little sick. I've been battling it uh, last week or so. I've been dodging it for the last three months. My and you kind of jinxed and yourself. <laughs> and the niece and nephew has been trading a cough for like the last three months. Uh, I jinxed it last week because we were talking about it. And I said, yeah, you know, I've been uh, been getting away from it, having haven't had any uh, issues. Um, it was right off the heels of uh, getting uh, vaccinated, too. So whatever. It is what it is. But uh, we are here to talk about recruiting because we have, what, less than like two months left here before we get the early signing period. And the porthole opens up. So uh, a lot of crazy stuff is going to happen, man. This is um, this is when uh, it gets crunch time. This is where we start to get closer to Thanksgiving and it's the home stretch for recruiting. And uh, you learn that anything can happen. Yeah, that's why we need to get sick now. We can't have it happen in the playoffs or the playoffs that are the equivalent of the playoffs for our podcast. We're, we're entering prime time. We have to peak at the right time, Gerard. And that is in the next couple of months. But we do have, you know, a, a packed show today. We're going to talk about decommitment season. There's some some big decommitments and some big crystal balls going out across the country and this is a recruiting podcast so we do want to touch on a little bit of those even though they don't specifically maybe line up with usc in general but we we just want to touch on all the things going on in recruiting we have a bunch of senior stats to throw out from usc commits you know regular seasons have pretty much wrapped up all across the country and playoffs are just beginning to get underway for for high school players uh we have you know another college football coaching carousel update we got a bunch of interesting Week 10 scores. We have a hefty recruiting angle for USC's 41-35 win over Cal. Big Friday night schedule. Big Week 11 of college football. And I know last week I said not doing any illustrative questions. I'm just throwing it out. I'm burning it for next week. But I half lied because we are going to do some listener questions. But it's going to be very, very minimal, Gerard. Very, very minimal. I'm, I'm saying that right now. So I, I hope you're prepared to do like maybe three questions. I'm just setting you up for that. <laughs> okay. I don't know why. Why were we burning them last week? Was it just because I went too long answering one of the questions? One of the six part questions. <laughs> Fair enough. But I think it's just because we were at like a really good pace and it was like two minutes, uh, sorry, two hours in like six minutes. And then listener questions literally like, Pretty much went almost an hour and just tacked it on. So 
I was at I was at a breaking point. I was like, I got to be a little more selective with questions, and maybe it's not every question. Maybe it's just the best that I pick out every every week. So we'll see about that moving forward. But I just wanted to limit it a little bit this week, just to see what see what happens. You know. Okay. Okay. We can we can see how it works. Uh, I always like to or answer as much as I can from the peristyle. I mean, we're on the peristyle, so there's always those. Uh, interactions when people have specific questions. Um, so this is a free podcast. So we do have some of the casuals mixed in with a lot of the hardcore fans that are into the details of recruiting. So it's one of those things where we do try to balance it out a bit, but um, we definitely want to answer the questions that people have, you know, I mean, that's, that's why we're here. It's not to answer our own questions. Although I do find that sometimes uh, cathartic, <laughs> especially when I'm doing the recruiting angle, trying to figure out this team and trying to figure out how it parlays into the recruiting process and the psychology of the recruiting process. When you do this long enough, you get into the weeds about it, you know, and you try to look for patterns and things. And so you start to go into the psychology of not only the college coaches, but the 17 year old young men, which is a dangerous place to go. Chris Trevino, dangerous <laughs> place to be in the head of a 17 year old. Very dangerous place, especially when you start trying to, Look at it logically like we have done in the past. But before we get into all that and a jam-packed show, I just have to take a moment to thank the official sponsor of the Composite Two-Star Recruits. Yes, if you listen to the show before, you know who it is. It's Meredith Schlosser, one of the best, if not the best, real estate agent in Southern California, the Los Angeles area. She is one of the top with over $600 million in sales at more than 205 star Zillow reviews. She's represented people from like Justin Silverstein, USC's head coach for USC's women golf, and Jeannie Buss, president of the Los Angeles Lakers, and even 10K Trevino. I've spoken about on this show and in past uh, reads that I went with Meredith and her team. Shout out to Jeremy Hensley and helping me find a house to rent. And they did it. It was like kind of like it was like that. It was so quick, it was so hard over the summer trying to get in, get get my footing in uh, with a very tough Southern California, especially in Long Beach housing market. And they stepped in and it was taken care of right away. So much stress off of me. And again, that's for rentals. That's for sales. That's for purchases. She has a full service team that allows her to do all this wide range of services and help a wide range of clientele. She also has extensive experience for first-time home buyers and sellers. Most recently, Meredith was recognized by Wall Street Journal within the top 1.5% of agents in the nation. That's not 1.5 of the West Coast. That's not 1.5 of Los Angeles. That's the country, the nation, Gerard. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. And you can check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. And again, if you are considering at this moment, you know, buying a house, selling your house, looking to move to a, a different place where you can rent, go with Meredith Schlosser and her team. I cannot stress enough how easy it was and, you know, how great they are at what they do. So, again, thank you to Meredith, Meredith Schlosser, the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits. Now, Gerard, cold open usually deals with something very, you know, hyper-specific hyper to USC recruiting, whether that's, you know, an upcoming commitment or a commitment in itself or, 
you know, a big offer or whatever. But today is a little bit more open. Today is a little more national because we were talking about this and we're calling it, you know, decommitment season. This is the time, as you mentioned, that December early signing period is coming up. We're in November. We're almost exactly a month away from it from it officially opening. So this is the time where prospects are, you know, looking around a little bit more. Schools are making that that extra little push now because they got to set it up for now to maybe make the flip uh, down the line in a couple weeks here. So this right now is entering, you know, decommitment season. So a big one, the biggest one that is that has hit the board recently or excuse me, like hit this recruiting cycle, that would be five-star linebacker Anthony Hill made a bunch of waves decommitting from Texas A&M, which we've talked about multiple times on the show the last couple of weeks is just being a full-on uh, dumpster fire right now with the, with the season that they're having. Anthony Hill, number 27 overall prospect, number one linebacker consensus. That's number one in our 24-7 sports rankings and the 24-7 sports composite. Uh, number 17 overall in the composite, six foot two, 225 pounds. This guy was a prospect that USC was recruiting in the offseason, a guy who took a, a official visit to USC over the summer. He's part of that golden hour group, that massive uh, grouping that came on campus in the summer. And, you know, him, he and uh, Tacky Curtis were USC's top linebackers on the board. And right now he's back available i know we've gotten a bunch of questions or you know people musing about hey will usc get back in with anthony hill but just an overall sense this is what we're entering in right now this is a big decommitment and i'm sure there's going to be bit more big decommitments across the country with other top teams or other programs with that nil money heating up and it's going to be fun and wild to see what comes down the pipeline as we get closer to December, early signing period, Gerard, are you ready? I don't know if I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> I think that uh, at least you're honest. Texas A&M last year were really the first to go in hard on NIL and to have a very aggressive strategy uh, pre-signing day. And there's a group of schools, sort of the uh, four families of NIL which come up regularly when it talks about being a little more aggressive, having a strategy that, you know, maybe a little controversial that some other schools don't agree with that some would suggest does not fall within the parameters of compliance or the definition of what NIL uh, is supposed to be by the NCAA. Texas A&M is one of those schools, Texas A&M, Tennessee, Miami and Louisville are really the four schools that come up the most. Oregon and Texas have been other schools mentioned, but not necessarily mentioned in having NIL money up front for kids before they sign. And so this is a very interesting and really the first big-time recruit we've seen from one of those four schools decommit. And so we talked about this over the summer and getting into August and September. There's a lot of people that behind the scenes felt like, well, hey, look, it. if some of these kids are making deals with NIL and they're receiving money up front, that's going to lock them into their commitments, regardless of what happens with those football teams, with those coaching staffs. They're done deal. 
And I just don't think that's true. I think that regardless of what money is out there, there can be changes in these recruitments and whether kids give the money back or not, I think is a moot point. Cause we talked about, you know, the challenges of that. If somebody's going to sue somebody, it goes to court and all of a sudden this financial paperwork and these contracts, they see the light of day and then the NCAA can actually get involved because the NCAA does not have subpoena power. So when it comes to private sector, the NCAA has no enforcement there and collectives are, they're completely private sector. They're boosters with shell companies uh, in some cases, and they operate completely off the grid from what the NCAA can, can look at in terms of paperwork, in terms of being able to see what the numbers look like and what they can audit and what they can really look at in terms of compliance. And that's true of the schools as well, to some extent. Uh, once kids are signed and they're on the team, then it becomes a little bit different. But when you're talking about high school kids before they even get to campus and sign in Leverum 10, it's kind of a free-for-all with some of these kids. And some schools have taken advantage of that. Anthony Hill is one of the first kids here, one of these schools that has been very aggressive with NIL, who is now decommitting. Is this, you know, the first big decommitment of many for a and I'm sure people are, are going to assume that. There's always sort of that, you know, uh, it's either, you know, one extreme or the other, you know, these schools are getting everybody or they're getting, or everybody's going to decommit from them. I don't know what's going to happen with the rest of Texas A&M's class. I don't know what's going to happen with the kids that are on the team. You know, there's obviously been a lot of speculation about possible transfers because things not necessarily working out like they thought they were going to work out. But truth be told, I've heard that about many programs. I think, you know, NIL is still an evolving aspect of college sports. And so this was a big deal, bigger picture in terms of NIL and early commitments and what schools are doing pre-signing day. Uh, how does it, you know, uh, is it a precursor to other potential decommitments from some of these schools? Could be, it could be. There's definitely some smoke with some other players, uh, but we're just going to have to see how it all shakes out. Uh, some of these teams are having good years like Tennessee. Miami's not. Louisville's not necessarily. So we're going to have to see how this all evolves. But I think it is, like I said, the first big-time recruit that committed to a school very aggressive and a part of that group of NIL schools uh, that's often talked about. We're talking about you know, deals pre-signing uh, that has uh, wavered and now decommit. And I think that uh, there's a possibility that this kind of shows really the collectives more than anybody that regardless of what these deals are pre-signing day, um, <laughs> everything, everything is, is pretty much non-binding. Even if you've got contracts and what have you, again, going back to that conversation we had over the summer, you know, what are you going to do? Are you, are you going to, are you going to call some kids bluff and take them to court over that money? And then you're kind of outing your operation and, and, and what happened in terms of money exchange and what have you. And it's not the, rec the recruit might be in some trouble, but it's really going to end up getting your own school in trouble. You're going to be telling on yourself. So I think that's the bigger issue here uh, when you're talking about this kind of thing. It's, it's sort of right now the price of doing business. If that's what you want to do, if that's how you want to approach um, the NIL era, uh, you're going to get burned probably. 
you think they'll they treat it almost like a like a signing bonus? Like you don't really give your signing bonus back, right? That's yours. It's, it's yeah, almost I like mean, it's 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 the upfront thing. I've heard kids getting paid to to take unofficial visits, um, you know, little deals and things here and again. You know, it can be legal uh, technically if there's something that goes along with it, which is compliant with what the NCA regulations are. But it's just it's really hard to keep track of everything. And so, you know, as as we get into these years and these cycles that go by and we have more examples, then we can sign, kind of look back and say, OK, this is what worked. This is what didn't work. and you can sort of make a, a criticism or analysis from that right now. It's all just sort of happening. And it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of rumors, you know, cause again, it's financial. People don't really want to talk about what they're getting paid or what they're not getting paid. It, it's always sort of behind the scenes and closed door type talk. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to kind of see, I guess the aftermath of it, you know, the results of it, what it produces and then make an analysis off of that. And I think it's interesting that the, the four families that you mentioned, A&M, Tennessee, Miami, and Louisville, um, for the most part, you know, we've talked about how much A&M has struggled this year. Miami, you know, we're going to talk about their score from over the weekend. They're, they're struggling. Louisville was struggling very early in the season. They've kind of rebounded a little bit. I believe they're like, I believe they're bowl eligible. And Tennessee, obviously, it, at one point, it was the number one team in the country. But, you know, for the most part, you know, three of those four schools w- were or are struggling very heavily throughout this season. And it becomes it be, it, it puts them in a position where it really puts the, the the argument of like, how much does on the field results matter to kids when nil is involved it's how strong is your bag even though you're getting you know dog walked on the field and you're losing games and you're on losing streaks like at one point is there a breaking point with uh the nil money compared to you know getting blown out by 40 points to arrival like where where's the breaking point like where do the two points meet on the axis on the on the on the graph you know and you know, A&M showing a little bit of where it meets with, you know, their biggest commitment or one of their biggest commitment. I don't know exactly where he falls. I'm sure he's number one, but where, uh, you know, backs off. He's 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 looking elsewhere. He's he backs off. You know, bag wasn't strong enough. He's like, I don't want to be a part of that. And, you know, moves on. So it, it does bring up this interesting uh, dynamic of the on field results and not entirely canceling out what's happening when it comes to uh, NIL deals and, and all that. Yeah, exactly. And we're looking at the bigger picture of the rankings in terms of recruiting at classes. Alabama's number one. Georgia's number two. Notre Dame's still number three, even though <clears throat> they lost Keon Keeley. Mm-hmm. And there's been talk of other guys leaving. Certainly that win over Clemson sort of helps them to some extent probably keep some of those guys together because I know they had pretty big visit lists for that Clemson game. LSU is number four, Ohio State number five, and Ohio State fans were complaining during the summer that, you know, they were losing guys because there was other teams out there that were paying kids over the summer to commit and not just to sign. And they were one of the schools that weren't going to do deals 
uh, with kids until they signed. It was, okay, you sign and this is the deal that we'll have for you. And Alabama was like that over the summer. And I felt like there maybe had been a change or something. They they lost out in a couple guys and all of a sudden it was like, boom. They just, <laughs> I don't know, they turned it around real quick. So I don't know what the... the they rolled their sleeves up. They definitely wore their sleeves up. They 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 lost a couple guys, and we saw this with some with some other schools. I mean, even with Oregon, uh, when they lost Nikolai Madeva to Tennessee, it sort of uh, kind of seemed to change their approach a little bit with NIL and how aggressive they wanted to be. And so there is that that gray area as to you know, I, I guess maybe there's different um, situations for different recruits and what have you. But schools are definitely learning on the fly, but. When you're looking at those schools that have been super aggressive and and mentioned many times by many people, Miami is the highest ranked of that group at number seven. And then you kind of have to go down in, in Tennessee's number 12 right now. So they're just a spot above USC in the 2023 class rankings. They've got one more commit than USC. And then Louisville 17, which is pretty high for Louisville. Um, and then it sort of falls off from there. I mean, Texas A&M's got 11 commits. And they're 23 right now. So obviously a big drop off from last year. They didn't have a great season last year, which is why a lot of people felt like, you know, the NIL was really the overbearing, overriding factor for that class. But they followed up with another bad season. And this season, they didn't beat Alabama, you know, and and that's going to be something that we see LSU is going to try to parlay. Hey, we beat Alabama. It's one of those things where you can beat a school like that. And you can preach your rebuild like, hey, yeah, you know, we lost some other games and, yeah, we had some other issues, but let's just gloss over that and focus on we beat Alabama. So that shows you that we're, we're, we're headed in the right direction. Well, Texas A&M beat Alabama last year and it didn't really uh, show that the trajectory of the program was really going forward. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing to watch the parallels between how the teams are playing and those factors, those traditional factors of academics, the traditional factors of depth chart, um, NFL draft picks, and uh, and just the relationship with the coaching staffs and how much all those factors together fight off a potential deal for a kid that, you know, maybe is just, you know, a lot more money. And so we're, we're just seeing that right now play out in front of us. And one person or one player we haven't mentioned yet with this whole decommitment season is Oregon QB commit Dante Moore, who is ranked, I believe, number two in the country. Yeah, number two for, for via the 24-7 sports composite, excuse me, 24-7 sports rankings and number eight in the 24-7 sports composite, number two quarterback uh, via our rankings. You know, he recently picked up a crystal ball, a flip crystal ball from Oregon to Michigan State. And that made a bunch of waves uh, in the recruiting you know, circles and online and message boards. Obviously, he is the top commit for the Ducks. And there's been some you know, swirling rumors about Dan Lanning and certain jobs opening up, which we'll get into. But it does, uh, you know, it it just speaks to the 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 decommitment season that we're in, and you know Michigan State is, I believe, not having that great of a season, or they're not as they're not as good as uh, Oregon. But you know he is a local kid and uh, Detroit, Michigan guy, and you know Michigan State they're four and five. So it does it does it, it is interesting to see a a kid committed to a top ten program 
pick up a crystal ball to a to a team that is not even bowl eligible right now, even though you know they are local. Uh, but still, uh, things are afoot, Gerard. Yeah, that one is a little more difficult to sort out because you do have the local school. Michigan State has always recruited the Detroit area very strongly, and so you know they were always involved, uh, but they were taking a back seat to the Floridas and A&Ms uh, and Oregons uh, during the summer. And again, that was when the NIL talk was the hottest. Michigan State hasn't been completely uh, on the outside of that talk either in terms of NIL and having uh, some, some strong deals for kids and, and you know doing a good job coming off of that season they had last year. But this season has been disappointing for them. And you would think that with Oregon and Bo Nix having such a good year, that's the sell for them. And and Dante Moore would feel like he could come in for Bo Nix next year and be able to be the starter. Now they, you know, there's there's some other competition in there. I know they've got uh, uh, a, a former five star from Arizona, and his name escapes me on the Arizona or excuse me on the Oregon depth chart. I think it's Ty Thompson. Uh, I, I believe it's Ty Thompson. I'll, I'll get yeah. it for you. Just keep going. Just keep doing I, your thing. I think he's uh, still there. And a lot of people at the beginning of the year, because Bo Nix started the year off so poorly, wanted to see him get more reps, you know, former five-star. And he's just kind of been sitting there and obviously was sort of picked over uh, when Nix transferred in. And so there'll be a, you know, a little bit of a competition there, obviously, for Dante Moore. But, you know, in terms of the depth chart and, and the way teams play, et cetera, you know, that that obviously winds up well for Oregon. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of NIL talk with Nike and what have you. Um, but, you know, Michigan State would be more of the home pick and more of the, you know, I want my family to see me play. And like I said, they, they've not been completely absent in the NIL talks in terms of having good deals for players, too. So I wouldn't necessarily write them off from that respect. But in terms of the year that they've had, uh, it's a step back. From Mel Tucker um, from last year, and I don't know offensively that you know that offense is is quite as a good a fit for Dante Moore. I mean, we saw them play against Washington earlier in the year, and they were just abysmal. They were just kind of like a quasi pro offense. It just they just couldn't really do much. They didn't have a lot of weapons, and certainly Dante Moore would help them in that respect um, because he would really be kind of the guy. Uh, in that offense to be able to make them more explosive. But, you know, again, the blueprint is there for Oregon. They're like, hey, look at Bo Nix. He's having a great year. You can come in and be that guy. And so, yeah, I, I think this one's a little more complicated. I've, I've heard that there's smoke here, though, that this is not a completely, you know, Homer type of thing, that there is there is some talk behind the scenes that maybe he just wants to stay closer to home and he wants to play in front of his family. And ultimately, you know, that's – that's a big pull. That's always something that we talk about with these recruits. And as the holiday season gets closer and family kind of gets uh, reinforced as being an important part of your life, you know, that kind of stuff, it maybe hits you a little harder than when you're jet setting across the country during the summer. Yeah. Sounds like those in-home visits for Dante Moore and for all the recruits are going to be very critical when you're getting in front of those families, walking in their homes and, you know, Mel Tucker, gets in there you know that's gonna be an interesting one to see what happens and that quarterback you were thinking of was ty thompson except he wasn't a five-star he was a top 100 prospect uh number 40 in the 24 7 sports composite uh 
uh, out of Gilbert, Arizona. So uh, did I he go to you, Highland I, High School? Did he go to Highland? Um, Mesquite. Okay, right. I was going to say I don't remember hearing about him or or him being there with uh, Caleb Lamu. Obviously, they're not the same class, but um, usually you have uh, some type of uh, pipeline or what have you. And with Oregon recruiting Caleb Lamu, I, I just never heard about. Oh yeah, you know because. You know, Ty Thompson went to Oregon and blah, blah, blah. You'd have some type of inside, uh, you know, angle to recruiting him. So, yeah, Gilbert has uh, two high schools of it that, that uh, produce some pretty good talent. There you go. And to quickly uh, I just address before we move on, the, you know, the Anthony Hill, you know, we're, we've been getting people asking, is USC going to get back involved with the five-star linebacker? Uh, yeah, or, we didn't even know. talk about uh, – <laughs> right. How pertinent, or you know, how, what this means for USC. So we should probably uh, get into that from a recruiting standpoint. I don't know what you've heard, and it, you know, certainly just kind of happened. But we know that Hill was he. He and Tackett Curtis were like specifically like the top two guys on their board. It was it was Tackett and Hill. Anthony and Tackett and then whatever and everything just fell off there that that's where their two top priorities were and you got the sense that USC was in a much much better place with Tackett Curtis and USC was kind of on the outside looking in for uh for Hill with you know Texas and Texas A&M and they were going to need a special kind of season to pull that off, but we we had the the sense that Anthony was going to commit before the season, so a lot of that you know faith based recruiting wasn't going to be it wasn't the best setup for USC to kind of uh, pull off that that win uh, in beating out those Texas teams, and you know Tackett is kind of the the one they want to play their Mike position. He's their their future. He's the prototype that they want. And Anthony also fits that mold. So I wonder if it's not necessarily worth it, but do you try to even try to bring in both when, you know, you've already, you know, been selling one tacket this position? Like this is the position we want you to play. This is the position we need you to play is Mike, Mike, Mike. And can you go and even do that with Anthony Hill now it feels like you're really set with Tackett and I know you you know USC fans are have been watching last couple games and linebacker play has not been um really up to standard and they've really struggled with Eric Gentry on the sideline with that ankle injury and it's kind of really highlighted how much additional linebacker help that they need and you know look you get Anthony Hill and Tackett Curtis, you that's like you throw a parade for Brian Odom and, and Lincoln Riley, but I just don't see that being able to be pulled off. Um, Dredd, I don't know what, what your thoughts are on that. At face value, no way. Uh, at face value, it was great to get him on campus during the summer. He was one of those guys that was a traction recruit that we talked mm-hmm. about over the summer. They wanted to just get their foot in the door with him. And it's good that they have established a relationship with him. I don't think Tackett Curtis and Anthony Hill are an either or. I think you could definitely 
take both guys. I think Anthony Hill would be more of a will in that standpoint because he's a bit more athletic. He's a bit more of a slasher. We haven't really seen what Tackett Curtis looks like as a linebacker because he mostly plays single high safety. So it's kind of, you know, we're, we're projecting a bit how he looks in the box playing as a Mike linebacker. But I feel comfortable with Tackett Curtis being my Mike, and I would put Anthony Hill at will all day and let him be sort of that cleanup man on the backside. He has that athletic ability. I was kind of pounding the table. He dropped to a three-star and was an edge, according to 24-7 Sports, at some point. I don't know if it was like his sophomore year. And I, was, I had no idea why. I was just shocked at that because I'd seen his film very early on after USC had offered him. I was like, this dude is the best linebacker in the country. He's, he might be the best linebacker in the country, regardless of class. He's a dynamic, explosive, violent player uh, that still shows that he, he probably has a little bit of upside where he can get a little better in terms of his vision and understanding. I think with Tackett Curtis, his awareness is really high up. I mean, he obviously has the athleticism. He's playing defensive back uh, at, you know, like 6'2", 230. Uh, but I think, you know, his eyes and, and just the understanding of the game, I think that's why you put him at Mike Linebacker. You feel confident that, you know, the cerebral side of the game, that he's going to be able to absorb it uh, early on and be able to execute and help everybody around him. Because that's what you need from your life, Mike Linebacker. It's not a position where you can kind of play with blinders on, whereas Will, you can. Will, you can kind of set your Will Linebacker loose a little bit, let him blitz, let him backside. He's going to be in coverage a little more. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So, um, I, I think you could recruit both of those guys. I think what you're saying is, you know, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And do you upset the balance of mm-hmm. potentially having Tackett Curtis, and then you're trying to recruit Anthony Hill as well? And you would have to talk very uh, clearly and communicate with Tackett Curtis what your plans are. I mean, I think that's always important. I think that's something that we saw with the past staff where there was some issues where some balls were dropped because they offered somebody or started recruiting somebody and and never talked about it with somebody that was already committed. And you're like, well, why wouldn't you just give that call? Why, you know, <laughs> you want to be upfront with this type of stuff because it's not going to be a secret, you know? Um, but does USC have a good shot at Anthony Hill? Is it even, is it, is it just, you know, not just a moot point? I know talking to Braxton Myers, a former four-star safety that was committed to USC he was pretty close with Anthony Hill. They played on the same seven on seven team together. And, you know, Anthony is always was just impossible to get on the phone or, or really talk to very much. But Braxton was close with them. And Braxton always felt like, yeah, we got to get him on campus and just, you know, try to try to try to try to impress him enough that all of a sudden he starts thinking about USC more. And then after the visit, he, he admitted, he said, you know, I, I think like it took him a while. It took him a longer to kind of open up and uh, have a good time at USC, but he eventually did and he enjoyed his visit. But there was never this feel like USC had really made enough ground up to be, you know, one of his top like two or three schools at that point. Alabama, Texas. LSU, there was a few other schools there that had been recruiting him, and I think those same schools are going to come up in conversation now. Texas is the early leader, according to a lot of people. I would not count Alabama out. And LSU, you know, with their good year, they're trying to, again, parlay this into a, a big recruiting class, and I could see them just being, you know, a little closer than USC might be 
uh, a school that kind of comes out of nowhere a little bit for him, a little bit of a dark horse. Um, but USC, right now, having not spoken to anybody that's spoken directly to Anthony Hill in the last 48 hours, I would just say at face value, that's that's the longest of long shots. And I would be surprised if we saw him on campus again this season. But you never count anything out, direct. Yeah, you never say never. I never mean, again, say never. You you make you make those official visits during the summer and schedule them as such, so you have that time, you know, because you know you need to make up some ground with some of these out of state guys, and that strategy is all about breaking ice and getting traction with some guys, and you know they're going to commit somewhere else during the summer, and you just keep working them and you keep that that relationship going. And, you, and time is on your side sort of thing. And so um, would it be great to, you know, have an official visit left or something and, and then bring him in later in the year? Yeah, but he took all his official visits during the summer. He doesn't have any official visits left. So you knew that if you were going to get an official visit from him, you had to do it during the summer. So, you know, it makes total sense how USC played it. Um, I don't know if they could have played it any better. Is it going to give them a chance to be able to get back into things? I mean, you have to get him probably back on campus. Because I think he's going to probably go to Texas. He's probably going to visit LSU or Alabama again. The school that he's going to commit to next is going to get an unofficial visit. So USC has to work for that. But I would be pretty surprised if if they were able to do it. And there you have it. And that will conclude decommitment season talk for the cold open and everything Anthony Hill. And we'll keep monitoring that, monitoring that if anything else pops up. But not... To, to move off maybe like the longest of long shot potential commitment, let's go to guys that are actually committed to the clash right now, Gerard. Uh, we You did actually, not me. I'm not taking any credit for this, but you went and you added a bunch of senior stats for several of USC's uh, top commitments or at least the ones that uh, have stats on uh, Max Preps. I'm assuming is where you got them, Gerard. So... I'm just going to read through, you know, all of these that you have listed and maybe you can just uh, jump in for ones that stand out to you. Is that how you want to play it? Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, we have to start at the quarterback. Malachi Nelson uh, finished 60, 166 of 251 uh, for 2,654 yards, 33 touchdowns, three interceptions, and a pair of rushing touchdowns for Los Al. Makai Lemon, who had a really, really good uh, senior year, but, you know, a little bit banged up at the end of the year. Uh, had 51 receptions, 894 yards, 10 touchdowns, and one kick return for a score. Had some interceptions in there and some tackles as well as a cornerback. Uh, uh, Quentin Joyner, a monster season, parlayed that into an All-American uh, nomination. Uh, 1600, uh, 1,693 rushing yards. 24 touchdowns, a 9.5 yards per carry average, and racked up 350 rushing yards and four tuggies on Friday. USC's other running back commitment, uh, Marion Peterson, 1,257 yards on the ground, 17 rushing touchdowns, and a 9.9 yards per carry. So shout out to Kyle McDonald and his evaluations over the summer. Two really, really good backs coming out of the Lone Star State. Uh, Zachariah Branch. Out there in uh, Las Vegas, uh, Bishop Gorman, 40 receptions, 626 yards, 10 touchdowns, a punt return score as well. 
Tackett Curtis out Louisiana, 36 tackles, four tackles for a loss, five rushing touchdowns, and two punt return scores. Local cornerback Malachi Crawford, 37 tackles, one pick, and eight passes defended. Uh, Arizona wide receiver Jacoby Lane, 49 receptions, 618 yards, eight touchdowns, was recently featured on ESPN for his incredible catch um, over the over the week, last week, and their playoff loss, I believe. Uh, just an incredible catch from him down the field. Uh, uh, Rancho Cucamonga safety, Christian Pierce, 41 tackles, four tackles for a loss, 2.5 sacks, two interceptions, and a pick six, which Gerard got on camera. Uh, defensive lineman Grant Bucky, 39 tackles, five tackles for a loss, five sacks, and a fumble recovery for a score. New linebacker edge commitment David Peavy, 31 tackles, 10 tackles for a loss, five sacks, and a pick. And defensive line commit Dejan Lafitte, 42 tackles, 19 tackles for a loss with five sacks. And that is some of the highlights from USC's number 13 ranked recruiting class, number two in the Pac-12. Gerard, what, what, just give me the first one that jumps out to you. Like which, which stat line jumps out to you the most? Well, I mean, you know, you want to start at the head of the class with Malachi Nelson and, uh, you know, throwing 60 one sixty-two percent uh, of his passes and for 33 touchdowns and only three interceptions. And, and obviously the three interceptions is a big number. You want to have uh, your quarterback take care of the football. And he does that well for Los Alamitos. Uh, I think you watch him and you watch Caleb Williams and they are different players, uh, but they are both guys that have great vision on the field and great vision, not only in the pocket, but especially outside of the pocket, they make good throws, catchable balls. You don't see a lot of those type of passes where you get bad deflections. And that is really about ball placement. And I think with Malachi Nelson, uh, that's especially true. He, he throws a real catchable ball and um, he's got, you know, some decent receivers there at, at, uh, at Los Alamitos. He's going to be jumping into the, the big boy, pool of uh, CIF, um, the the best teams in the playoffs. He's going to see some of those Trinity schools. Uh, we'll talk about that a little later, but um, it's going to be even more of a challenge now uh, going forward. But they started off the season with a pretty good schedule. So uh, those are good stats for him. Uh, Makai Lemon, as you said, only played about seven, eight games total this season. It looked like he was going to have easy 1,000 yards receiving, but just with the injuries, uh, they didn't need to play him real hard in the past few games. And so, you know, he's just under that. He'll go over a thousand yards for the playoffs for sure. But he's had a, a tremendous year. A guy that, um, you know, is now a five star again after starting the, the season as a five star. And I think there's a good argument for him being the number one athlete in the nation. Uh, you mentioned Quentin Joyner, who's had several really big games. I mean, he's had nine straight hundred yard rushing games this season. He's had a couple that he's gone for over 200 yards rushing and, and last Friday, 350 yards rushing. A very unique runner. Uh, gives me a little bit of those Maurice Drew vibes in terms of being kind of short, cut off. I think I compared him to, you know, being built like a pineapple grenade. And he's explosive <laughs> like that. I mean, he's a, he's a very unique type of player running for nine and a half yards of carry. And then you couple him with Amir Peterson, who's uh, running for 9.9 yards of carry uh, at, you know, 6'1". 200, 210 pounds. Those are both very physical backs. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, they add a lot to what USC does 
we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, looking forward to like that 2024 season when USC enters the Big Ten or whatever we want to call it, the big national conference, and how they could set themselves up to be a really, really good run team. I mean, you've got projecting Malachi Nelson as the starting quarterback, redshirt freshman. You want to bring him along slowly. You know, you don't want to put too much on his shoulders. And you could have a very good group of interior linemen that are coming in from that 2024 class. Uh, you could have uh, just a, a bigger, more physical, I think, offensive line as a whole when you count 2024 and 2023. And then you look at the running backs that you have. I, I feel like the run game is really going to be the strength of that offense. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how the offense evolves with the personnel as Lincoln Riley is able to bring in more of his sort of handpicked players. Um, you're going to have transfers as well that are going to fill in the gap and that could, you know, change things. It, it could, it can shift, you know, where you want to focus your offensive production, but yeah, face value. When you look ahead, it's pretty exciting to see those running backs and how physical they are and the, the yardage that they're gaining combined with, I think a, a really good solid offensive line that USC has got committed now and the offensive line that they could follow up with for 2023. Um, you talked about Tackett Curtis, you know, with his punt returns for touchdowns, playing a ton of wild pet cat quarterback. Again, we talk about him as a linebacker and moving to that Mike position. And the Mike position is a lot of intangibles. And you've got a guy here that's playing both sides of the ball for his high school, and he's playing a bunch of quarterback. So, you know, quarterback of the defense, that's not going to be something that's going to be hard for him to adapt to. Uh, he's going to be a freshman and expectations, you know, you have to keep them in check, but of the players that you would want to bring in from a profile standpoint as a true freshman for Mike linebacker, I mean, that's what you want. You want a guy that's got his speed, that's got his athleticism, but also from an intangible standpoint has his leadership skills and has the ability to communicate with the guys around him. And, and if you're playing quarterback, you obviously got to do that. And so I think that's really a big deal for him. That's not going to show up in the stats so much, but that's a, a big deal for him being able to play next year. Um, you know, we talked about Christian Pierce. You know, I think he's a little Your bit. Boy. Yeah, I think he's, he's played well enough to get that four star. Um, David Peavy's had a really good year with uh, 10 tackles for losses, five sacks. Seems like five sacks is a thing, you know. <laughs> Grant Hunky, five sacks. David Peavy, five sacks. Dejan Lafitte, five sacks. But, you know, Dejan Lafitte also 19 tackles for losses, which is pretty good. So, yeah, we're looking at a group that's uh, pretty disruptive. And um, I think a lot of length that USC has, you know, they have to get bigger in that front seven. And, of course, that's really the talk of everybody. I think the front seven uh, – you know, the, the, the pass rush mixed with that sort of intermediate passing game has been a little bit of an issue for USC this season. Some people would say it's a lot of issue, but certainly it's, it's that sort of gap uh, between the defensive line and the linebackers where USC has just seemed to, you know, the talent, I think, has not been necessarily up to par. Not what we've seen from past USC teams that have been 8-1, and 9-1. So I think USC from a coaching standpoint, I know a lot of people are criti critical of Alex Grinch, but you do have to take into account first year and you have to take into account that they're doing more with less in terms of uh, the talent. And one guy we hope to maybe get, you know, some senior stats on him is Braylon Shelby out there in Friendswood, 
uh, playing that edge position who I know you're really high on, but the coaching staff just hasn't updated that, uh, that max preps. They've only had one game under uh, uh, listed for their stats. So hopefully, you know, it makes a district team or something. They'll have, they'll have their stats or we'll have to check it for his. Uh, well, you got, you got to reach out to him. Chris, he's your guy. He's the, yeah. he, you were the one that put out there first that USC leads from after that uh, official visit. And he's so, a busy guy. He's a busy guy. I don't know what to tell you. They're, they're about to start the, the playoffs right now in Texas. It's a, it's a very intense time in Texas right now, Gerard. Well, it's and you mentioned Jacoby Lane. Uh, they, I believe, have one more week. I think this is their last regular season, and then the playoffs start. I think next week in Arizona. I'm not. Oh, I, th- I thought I thought I read it was a playoff loss. My <laughs> you know, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong on that. I, I read it, and I thought it was actually next week the playoffs start for them. But yeah, I may, maybe I'm wrong. I I, I thought um, they still had a game uh, afterwards, so that wouldn't make sense if they lost last week. They wouldn't have a game this week. But, I, again, I could be wrong. Might have just saw that wrong. No, you're right. There is a game this week. They play a Mountain View, which is 2-7. and seven, So, you are right. I was wrong. So, thank you for calling me out, Gerard. I appreciate it. <laughs> Putting me in my place. The hurricane. And I don't know if you can hear the background of the studio, but it sounds like I'm in a car wash right now. That's the 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 water and the rain is hitting the windows very hard out here. Uh, in Redondo Beach. I don't know what, what the sound is like with you. It actually, it sounds fine. Um, uh-huh. I was thinking the same thing here. It just, like, I could literally hear the rain on the roof. <laughs> so, you know, it was, like, loud enough that I actually had to turn you up. Uh, I'm, I've, got, I've got max volume right now on my computer just to hear you. Yeah, I, I thought it was, like, the air conditioner or the heater, and then I realized it's because it sounds like kind of like whooshing, hitting uh, all around me, and I realize, oh no, it's the rain. I look out; it's like destroying the windows. So yeah, it's. Uh, I'm hoping that dies down by the time we uh, wrap this up. But you know, those were the senior stats for a lot of those guys, and we'll give further stats uh, updates as you know their high school careers come to a close. And this will be a good time to transition into a segment we started a couple weeks ago. You know, looking around college football coaching carousel. Uh, no, no changes in opening positions. No, no hires have been made. Still the same contenders with Georgia Tech, Nebraska, Arizona State, Colorado, Wisconsin, and Auburn. And we spoke last week about Auburn, specifically Lane Kiffin, and the reports that came out that uh, the Lane train was the number one target for the Auburn administration. And here we are again talking about Auburn and a, another name that has popped up within the last week, and that's Oregon head coach Dan Lanning. And that would be wild. You know, there's no real, I would say, credible reports coming out that that Dan Lanning has any interest in the Auburn job or nothing like that. It's a lot of smoke right now. But, you know, Lanning is a guy who has SEC ties, you know, was at Georgia, had a stint with Alabama. And, I mean, Oregon – Outside of that, that loss to the Bulldogs and the opener has been playing really well and top 10 team in the country. This is his first you know, gig as a head coach in the Power Five. So it would be an interesting move for Auburn to go that, that route, but also would just be incredibly wild for Miami to, or excuse me, Oregon to have two different head coaches in two consecutive years and would need to be making a third 
uh, another head coaching hire uh, here this offseason if that, that were to happen. So that would be extremely wild, Gerard. That would be very wild. Um, I think if you're Auburn, that's a huge gamble. You look at what Willie Taggart did at Florida State when they hired him away from Oregon. You look at Mario Cristobal right now in Miami when they hired him away from Oregon. I don't know that a first-year head coach, yeah, Oregon's playing better now. In a conference that's still probably like third or fourth on the tier in terms of the best conferences in college football, I agree that, yeah, he is an SEC guy. He has ties to Kirby Smart, and obviously Kirby Smart at Georgia has been very successful. And I think for Dan Lanning, there might be some interest there. Uh, he shot down the rumors that there's interest, but, you know, we know how that goes. From his perspective, though, there was something interestingly said by Kirby Smart after they got annihilated by Georgia in that opening game, and that was they just they don't have the players. Our players were better. And that probably hit home with Dan Landing, and he's looking at that roster that he has, and Oregon's recruited as well as they've ever recruited. You're not going to get a whole lot better at Oregon. Uh, so that could be something which I think from Dan Lanning's perspective, you know, popping in the SEC at Auburn, you're going to be able to perhaps recruit more of those SEC type players, players that you're more comfortable with in terms of scheme. But from Auburn's standpoint, I think that's a huge gamble coming away from Brian Harson, I think you have to go after somebody with probably more experience. You know, Chip Kelly never gets talked about in this and I'm not trying to start rumors, but Look at guys that have built programs and have done it before other places. And he's got UCLA playing pretty well right now. A lot less talent at UCLA than at Oregon. Uh, certainly, Chip Kelly is not necessarily the best recruiter in the world, and partly that's on him why he doesn't have more talent at UCLA. But that's a guy that, again, experience-wise and what he did at Oregon, I think if you're Auburn, you're looking more along those lines than taking a chance on a first-year head coach that got obliterated against an SEC opponent that you're going to have to compete against and just has his team playing well within conference play, but that conference is pretty mediocre. And, you know, obviously that's the only real update for this this coaching carousel, and we'll, we'll keep coming back to it. You know, the only other murmurs out there is that maybe Nebraska will be taking – the interim tag off uh, Mickey Joseph and, and that position. So that's really the only up, update. You know, we're, we're going to get more updates as uh, the weeks go by, as we get closer to the, the early signing period and teams, you know, are not playing conference championships and, and coaches in that, in that sense are taking calls from other programs and ADs and stuff. So we'll keep that updated, but just wanted to touch quickly on Dan Lanning. Gerard, I think this is a good time to take our well-welcomed break. We'll come back, talk about some college football scores from Week 10, your Cal-USC recruiting angle, the Friday night schedule, and the college football schedule for Week 11, and then a couple questions. Does that sound good to you? That sounds great. All right. We'll be right back after this break. <laughs> When
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back! Gerard, how's your... Uh, how, how are you holding up in the second half coming out of, coming out of halftime? Uh, I'm focused. Just because people are leaving and the exit's early, I'm still focused. I'm ready. I'm hungry. I want to finish the second half strong. Okay. Sounds, sounds like a plan. Sounds like we're going to ride you... We're going to feed you the rock here in the second half and, and carry us to another successful podcast. Now, let's very quickly just take a look around week 10 of college football. A lot of scores up there, some some interesting scores, some embarrassing scores, some upset scores. So let's just jump into those and you can react to your score, the scores that uh, stand out to you the most. But Notre Dame with a huge upset of number four Clemson, 35-14 over the Tigers, who have been living dangerously all season, got got by the Fighting Irish. Florida hands Texas A&M another loss, 41-24 to over the Aggies. Baylor keeps Oklahoma from being bowl eligible in Week 10, 38-35 uh, over the Sooners. Georgia, in the biggest game of the week, handles Tennessee at home, 27 to 13, I believe that was a much bigger, uh, it was more one-sided than the score. Uh, Piers and Oregon just uh, destroyed Colorado. No surprise there. 49 to 10. USC playing the, the Buffaloes this week, and they need probably, it would be good optically to have a similar score to that. LSU with the upset of Alabama in overtime. Brian Kelly showing off those southern balls and going for it on two for two to upend Nick Saban 32-31 and then Florida State just demolishing Miami 45 to 3 and I know Miami had a bunch of big time visitors on hand for this game so that means they'll probably get a commitment in the next 48 hours but Florida State just destroying them 45 to three Gerard what was the score that stood out to you the most yeah I was waiting for those crystal ball picks to roll in for Desmond Ricks this week for Miami uh with that loss um yeah um, Get them all. Miami looking bad continuing to look bad and, you, and like you said earlier where does the rubber meet the road on how bad you can look there has to be a breaking point at some point and NIL, yeah. Well, we saw it again with with Anthony Hill. So, you know, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see with some of these other programs what happens. At the top, Notre Dame 35, Clemson 14. Kind of felt like Clemson's time was running out. You know, they didn't look like a strong team overall. Certainly not as strong as they've looked in the past. Offensively, going with DJ Ungalale and a lot of people feeling like maybe he should be benched. Interestingly enough, Mateo Ungalale was at that game. So he was an unofficial visitor for Notre Dame to go watch the Clemson. Um, and I don't know if he made it there or not, but uh, it'll be interesting to see if Notre Dame tries to kind of parlay uh, that game uh, if he was there 
to maybe get an official visit from him or to get more interest from him. Um, obviously, he probably wasn't having a very good time uh, on that trip to South Bend uh, because he was there really to watch his brother play. That's got to so, be weird to be hosting a the brother of an athlete of the team you're beating, which is a very like interesting situation to be in. Yeah, you got to be careful kind of how you talk about how you beat that team, you know? I mean, you don't want to gloat about it too much. And, man, you see how we sacked that quarterback? Man, we were we whooped his ass, man. He was, <laughs> he was all stained. You know, you don't want to go there. So, yeah, it's one of those things that uh, you have to uh, be careful. And I don't know to what extent they really hosted him. You know, he might have just been there um, and, uh, you know, hung out a little bit. Uh, he he may not even really technically been in an unofficial visitor for Notre Dame. I, I don't know uh, what the circumstances were. I just knew that that was the visit he was supposedly taking because a lot of people thought he would end up at Georgia because a lot of those Bosco guys, modern day guys, uh, took unofficial visits to the Georgia Tennessee game. So, um, you know, the SEC continues to try to dip in to uh, California to get some of the top recruits out here. Uh, your boy, Marcellus Williams, brother of Max Williams, four-star quarterback, 2024 recruit, got an offer from Georgia this past weekend on that unofficial visit. It's interesting to watch some of these SEC programs, though, because you see Bryce Young, you see uh, Darnell Washington, um, you know, even uh, one of Tennessee's top receivers is from Las Vegas. There's a lot of Western players that are out there playing for these programs. And again, it reminds me of when I started really started getting into recruiting and following recruiting. It was very much like this in college football. You had so many top players from the West coast going to Miami, going to Florida state, going to Tennessee. And it took Pete Carroll to, to win and to have a dynamic personality and a dynamic way of going after recruits to be able to keep all those guys home. And that's what, you know, Trojan fans are certainly hoping of Lane or excuse me, of uh, Lincoln Riley, not Lane Kiffin, Lincoln Riley. Oh, Oh, okay. Almost, yeah, a little, little <laughs> bit of a, a Freudian slip there because uh, I talked a little bit about Lane Kiffin in my recruiting angle and uh, talking a little bit about the Cal game. And it, there was some full circle sort of. Uh, Are you moving into that right now? Well, I mean, that's an interesting segue. I, I, I We might be done talking about last week's college football, and that would probably be a segue into the actual recruiting angle versus Cal. I just need to know what to mark down for the timestamp, Gerard. So you tell me. Are we moving on? We're I'm moving just, on. I, okay. We'll, we'll get into it. You know, 41-35 Cal, and this was a game where USC had control. You know, they, they start off a little sluggish on both sides, but eventually got control, got a 20-point lead, and it really looked like they were going to step on the neck of the Golden Bears. And then all of a sudden, you know, foot off the gas, Cal starts – scoring starts driving and it becomes a one possession game and USC needs to sort of ice it. They need to, you know, convert a little bit to, to, to keep the ball out of Cal's hands to keep the ball out of Cal's offensive offense's hands from scoring, which is a very wild sentence to say Gerard, knowing how bad Cal's offense is, but the defense was not it on Saturday once again. So I know you wrote a very lengthy, lengthy recruiting angle about this. So, you know, Last time, I think we started with the negatives. So, Gerard, up to you where you want to start positives or negatives for this recruiting angle. Well, we should start out with the positives because I know a lot of Trojan fans have a lot of trepidation and they're 
feeling very unsettled and unsatisfied from the last two weeks, really, because you can go back to the Arizona game and USC didn't play particularly well at the end of that game as well. And certainly against Cal, I think this stretch after the Utah game going into the bye week, and then you look at Arizona, Cal and Colorado, and you feel like, okay, this is a chance to dominate. This is a chance to get your second, third team players on the field and just kind of see where you are depth chart wise, rest some guys up. And it's been the opposite. These have been some of the most competitive games USC has had this season. And I think it's easy to just go straight into the negatives, but I think the one thing we have to take a step back and realize USC has now officially doubled their win total from last year. At this point last year, USC was four and I believe five. Think about that. Think about I'm thinking about game, it. The game that they played, and this week we would be talking about Keaton Slovis and Jackson Dart both together combining for 220 yards passing, uh, a couple picks. They get blown out by Arizona State, 31-16. And now we're talking about Caleb Williams being a legitimate Heisman Trophy candidate. Uh, I think if USC is able to beat UCLA and Notre Dame, I think Caleb Williams is going to be, I mean, he's going to be right up there. Uh, I know he's going to be in New York is what you're saying. Assuming he plays well in those games. I think he's got a really good chance of being in New York now. Um, If they win both of those games, I think he's got a really good chance of actually winning the Heisman trophy. uh, Realistically, which is mind blowing. Because you have to look back at last year, where we were at this point last year and where the program was. I, I, I mean, to get a possible addition to the Heisman trophies that are in Heritage Hall already off of year one, Lincoln Riley is insane. It's ridiculous. And we sat here and we talked about projections for the season. And I think most fans agreed with us. The guys and girls that were realistic about the expectations for this season talked about eight wins, maybe nine wins. That was it. Okay. We were talking about, they got to kick to the college football playoff. Uh, can do they have a shot at the national championship? Even getting to the Pac-12 championship was a little bit like, well, it's going to depend on how these other teams play. So I, I think we do have to put things into context as to is a win a win? Year one, Lincoln Riley, a win is a win. And he said this much. Now, I also understand that type of talk kind of brings up memories of Graham Harrell. And his, what do winners do? Winners win tweets that he sent out in 2020, which was kind of a big middle finger to people saying, this offense is playing like crap. In that 2020 abbreviated season, the offense didn't show up for three and a half quarters. And they made these miracle comebacks against Arizona State, Arizona, UCLA. There's like four games that season, which, it, I mean, they were literally the last four minutes of the game the offense woke up and they played and they won the games and they end up being undefeated going into the Pac-12 championship and they get Oregon coming down in their place in the Coliseum for the Pac-12 championship, which you know that they wanted revenge against Oregon. That coaching staff hated the Oregon coaching staff and they still lose. Why? Because they weren't a very good football team. And Graham Harrell with those tweets was glossing over all of the issues 
that we were seeing with the offense. And those issues came to a head during that Oregon game. And they lost that game. And I know a lot of people in the administration were very frustrated with that loss. They should have never lost that game against a pretty crappy Oregon team. It was really not a good Oregon team either. So at home, I think when Lincoln Riley says, you know, a win is a win, it's better to win and have issues that you need to address than after losing. I don't know if everybody agrees with that because if you lose, there's a little more sense of urgency. Like, oh crap, we just lost the game. You know, we need to figure out what's going on. If USC would have lost the Arizona and Cal games, they would have to have a real heart to heart here as to, okay, what do we need to do here? We just lost two games that we shouldn't have lost. Shouldn't even been close. And you, you have to be probably more drastic with your adjustments, but when you win, maybe it becomes a little more marginal in terms of what adjustments you're making. So I think from a fan perspective, and putting myself in the shoes of the Parastylers, I understand where they may take a little bit of issue with a win is a win. But again, you have to put this into the context of being year one and where USC was last year. So I think that's a positive. I think the fact that eight, USC has one loss and eight wins in the first year of this rebuild is a win. I think the fact that USC, as Caleb Williams is a Heisman Trophy candidate, and Tui, Tui Pelotu leads the nation in sacks, played himself into a potential first-round pick. You know, recruiting is sometimes most efficiently done when you can recruit from a statistical or reward award standpoint, meaning when you're coming away from a season where you can point to certain players and certain statistics and say, look, at the numbers don't lie. You know, we've developed – into one of the top defensive players in the nation, regardless of position. He leads the nation in sacks. Come do that. This is not opinion. This is not me trying to skew you. This is what it is. These are the numbers. These are the awards that our players are up for. You're going to have Jordan Addison up for Belletnikov. You're probably not going to win it this year, but he'll be up for it again. You'll have uh, Andrew Voorhees will probably be up there for Outland. You're going to have a bunch of guys out there that are potential award winners for USC. And again, I think that is something that works really well for a lot of recruits that, again, are looking at recruiting for much of the year from the, the sports center perspective, right? They're just looking at box scores. They're not getting into the nitty gritty of how USC won the game. It's just, did USC win? What were the statistics? How did such and such play? Oh, cool. Well, that's a position I want to play. He played really well. He's got awards. He's probably going to go to the NFL. He's probably going to be a pro bowler. He'll be a Hall of Famer. Shoot, I want to be that guy. I want to be next in line. So from that standpoint, I think USC is still in a very good place from the recruiting process because they have the statistics and they had the awards to be able to show some of these players. Now, on the flip side, negatives, the second half defense was really bad. Now, you have to watch that game a couple times because I came away feeling like the defense just played bad the whole game. But the truth of the matter is the defense had seven series where they put Cal's offense back on the sideline after a really bad opening series where they allowed Jay not to run wild on them. They did a really, really good job stopping the rush. I think they stopped a cow for like 2.6 yards per carry, which is one of the lowest rushing of averages that USC has allowed this whole year. So they made an adjustment there 
with Cal running the ball. Unfortunately, the second half, we saw what I feel, and this is just my opinion, is remnants of the losing culture left over from Clay Helton. And that is the team losing interest in the game because they were up three scores. And we've seen this time and time again under Clay Helton where Colorado or Cal or Arizona would be playing USC at home. They're a mediocre team. USC is you know, picked to win by, by you know, two, three scores. And USC gets up in that second half, like 38-14, and everybody just figures the game's over. People in the stands figure the game's over. They start to leave early. The guys on the sidelines, they don't feel the intensity, the, the atmosphere. They start to check out. They know that the team across from them is not a threat to beat them. And they start taking series off. And the next thing you know, 38-14 is 28-38. It's like, what happened here? What, what, how come you weren't able to close this game out? Now, what I talk about in the recruiting angle this weekend, and this is going back to what I said, looping in Lane Kiffin, Lane Kiffin made a very interesting plea to Ole Miss fans earlier in the season. They had a game against Tulsa where they were up, I think it was 35-17 at halftime. They were completely controlling that game. They come out at halftime, and I guess the Ole Miss fans had kind of left the game. <laughs> they, they left the stadium. It was half empty, and the Ole Miss players sort of started playing flat. They didn't play like they needed to finish out the game. There was no intensity there, and they end up holding on to win that game 35-27, but after the game, Lane Kiffin basically said, listen, when we come out of that tunnel and the stadium looks like it's a high school game being held in a college stadium, it affects our players. There's a psychology to that. They have to fight that this is not a game that's no longer a competition. It's no longer being fought for. And I feel like that's something that has happened with USC. And it happened a lot with Clay Helton, where the players just feel like there's no reason to come out and really play with the intensity level that they played in the first half with. And you got to coach out of that. You got to recruit out of that if you're Lincoln Riley. And it's, it's a part of culture that it affects the, the team on the sidelines, it affects the locker room, it goes all the way into the stands with. The fans, because the fans are somewhat culpable, and you get a, a lead in the Coliseum, and people are just kind of like, oh, whatever. You know, the student section's looking at their phones. Half the crowd is like, hey, I want to get on the freeway early so I can get home. And I understand, you know, people have pointed out, yeah, don't start the game at 7.30 at night, and then you're almost leaving at midnight. That's definitely, you know, part of the issue as well, people leaving early. Uh, but I think those things sort of go hand in hand. And everybody's going to say, oh, man, you're making excuses for Alex Grinch. You're making excuses for this and that. No, uh, the run game, USC was really good at defensively. The pass game, they were not good with third downs. But when you look at how that game became a game again in the second half, it, the USC really fell asleep. It was a couple pass interference penalties. It was a, a, a broken bubble screen, which both of your safeties jump a bubble screen and let one of the receivers just completely run downfield. I don't know what was going on there. People want to talk about the front seven, and the front seven is definitely lacking talent. But the safety position the last three games has not stepped up either. You saw 
Utah absolutely abused USC safeties, thrown to the tight end for what do you have, 16 catches for 250 yards or something like that. Yeah. And you look at some of these plays where the safeties are there in position to make a play outside of that bubble screen, but they're not making the play. You know, they're 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 not uh, knocking the ball down. And it's not just against like the receiver. Sometimes it's against the tight end or it's against the running back. So the safety position has to be a little better, has to play better for USC as well. Um, but I think that there was just this feeling like this is this is something that we saw. And one of the few things we've seen that have crept up from the Clay Helton years where, you know, they fall asleep on that onside kick. Uh, it was just one of those things that you just didn't think Cal was capable of coming back and winning that game. And I think that had a lot to do with why the game was close. It, it, it wasn't just a, a um, it was beyond just the sort of physical thing. It was a little bit of focus. So I think that was kind of one of the biggest negatives that you take from it. And it reinstitutes something that we've said a lot of times on this podcast, culture is not going to change in one year. It's going to take years to do that. It takes a lot of time. It takes recruiting classes. It just takes habits to get everybody on the right page. And you can't expect that to be completely changed within you know, less than a, a year, a, a few months. Right. And I recall saying prior to the season that one of the things that we can say pointing to culture change is just, you know, what happens on game days on the sideline, like when USC gets punched in the mouth. And I guess in this example, not necessarily getting punched in the mouth, but beating up on somebody and just like letting them back in the game. And that kind of speaks to what you were talking about with a losing culture and, you know, seeing how a team responds to that just to see what you know them having success and then letting a weaker and inferior opponent walk back in there and making it you know a couple an onside kick goes your way you're you might be in overtime with this team so that's kind of what we spoke about in terms of because we because we knew as you just said we knew culture cannot be changed within you know nine months or 11 months or how, how long it's been it's it has to be multi seasons, multi recruiting cycles, multi uh, off seasons together with these with these guys and, and building it from the ground up. You know, we got a good foundation in place, but got to keep building on it. You know, it's like a it's like a house. Keep building brick by brick, as cliche as that is. And you don't build it all in one one season. And I think we, we've seen some good things from the culture in terms of, you know, how a team can respond on on the sideline and we've also seen some you know remnants of past coaching staffs as as you alluded to and you know those are still things that you need to flush out and and uh change and get better at and completely do away with and i think it'll get there you know it's it's as we said it's only been what like a little less than a year and still a lot of work to be done but They've done a lot of a lot of good work already, but you know, still much to be done. Yeah, and I think you know something else that I pointed out is you know this is not just uh, something that you have to be aware of at home in the Coliseum, but you can go in a lot of stadiums in the Pac-12 and they're half empty. And I'll read exactly what I just pulled up what Lane Kiffin said in September uh, after that uh, 35-27 win against Tulsa. He says when you come out and run out of the tunnel 
and it looks like a high school game playing in a college stadium, you can't let that affect you, said Kiffin. There's a psychology to that. There's a home field advantage for a reason. When it goes the other way, you kind of have that feeling like, oh, are we still playing a game here? The players have to fight that. And I, I just think that that is absolutely something that I think the coaching staff acknowledged it early in the season. I remember Lane Kiffin, excuse me, gosh, now I'm on <laughs> Oh, no. I remember Lincoln Riley actually addressing the second team defense in the Rice game. And we talked about it on the podcast. He came out to the field, he came out to the numbers, and he said, expletive, keep your head in the game. The game's not over. Keep playing. And he made a point. He was screaming at that second team defense don't let up, don't give up a cheap score here. And I thought, that's great. That exactly. That is something that this team, this program has been doing for a lot of years, giving up cheap scores at the end of games, just, you know, mailing it in because the game was already over at the end of the third quarter. And this is something I, I feel like has kind of crept back in where, you know, they're up, I think, 36, 14 or something like that. 30, 31, 34, 16. 34, 14. Yeah, 31, 16, I think it was 31, 16 against Arizona. And you're feeling like, all right, that's it. That's the game. You know, USC is going to, going to, they're going to keep scoring and Arizona is going to just have to be one dimensional. And it just didn't happen. And the same thing happened in the Cal game. Now you're going to see what happens against Colorado. Colorado is probably the worst opponent of the two. Cal has a decent defense and Arizona has a, a, a decent offense, a, a good offense. And I think the other thing that's funny is I think because Arizona on paper is better offensively. People felt better about that game and, and being close and high scoring, but because the perception is Cal has a terrible offense, it's like, oh my God, how could you let Cal score 35 points? So people are, are, are a little more nervous about the defense now because of the perception that people have about that Cal offense. Um, Jack Plummer is a, is a decent quarterback. I mean, he's actually not too bad when you look at his numbers statistically on the year, uh, but they aren't a great passing offense and that's how they were able to stay in the game against USC, which was surprising. So obviously everybody's going to look at the UCLA game. They're going to look at Notre Dame after they just beat Clemson and say, Oh my gosh, they're going to, they're going to bulldoze us and, and, and et cetera. And we, we know that's not how college football goes, but uh, I think it's, it's, it's never as good as it looks. Uh, it's never as bad as it seems. And I think that's sort of where the team is right now. And we'll see how they're able to come out against Colorado. You want to see a dominating win. But I had this feeling that Cal was going to make that an ugly football game and they were going to frustrate USC to some extent. I didn't have Cal scoring that many points, though. Yeah, can we just pat ourselves on the back as the Cilantro boys were the only two people to pick Cal and take the points at plus 21? We were the only ones. Right? Yeah. So I never really know those point spreads, man, because I don't gamble. I, I never know <laughs> if I'm even – I've screwed up on that once this year where I – You have. You have. I but had you the, got this one right. <laughs> I had the right idea and I had the wrong point spread. But, yeah, um, I just was not feeling a big win for USC uh, in that game. A against Arizona, I thought they would uh, beat Arizona similar to how they would beat Washington State. Um, against Colorado, they should absolutely blow out Colorado. Colorado is just a bad team overall. Uh, but there definitely has to be that sense when you get up in that second half at some point you got to keep playing hard and, and Lincoln Riley's got to, 
either engage more with the team on the sideline. They got to call some timeouts and say, listen, it's happening right now. You guys are looking up at the stands. You're thinking about what you're going to do on Fraternity Road tonight. You're thinking about the 9-0, whatever the hell it is. Don't let that affect you. Don't let it affect you that, you know, people are leaving the game early. There's still a game to be played. And um, that's just something that's just going to have to come with time. Absolutely. Very quickly, Gerard, do you want to give any flowers to Mike Jack, Michael Jackson III? You know, no, because okay. I read a, an article uh, from Chris Trevino and, and talked to Chris Trevino about how Michael Jackson was going to have some celebratory touchdown changes. Yeah, some update, you know, I was thinking moonwalk, maybe, you know, with the cleats or something. That's, that's a hard in the cleats, I think. That, um, that would be, that's why it would be great. If you could have moonwalk and cleats, that would be something, man. Um, but there was I nothing. The grounds crew would be very. There was uh, nothing. There was hey, nothing. he, he showed more than anything. You know, he, that's the most he's ever done <laughs> for a score, well, I'll say. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I, that's why we like Michael Jackson is because he's, he's very unassuming. He's always been sort of a low-key guy. And um, he's just a really good player. You know, he's a guy that we looked at and said, you know, a little bit of Amon Ross St. Brown to him. Um, I thought we were pretty high on him coming out of that class. We were. We were high on him. Uh, And you know who else played, which we really didn't talk about in the positive section, is uh, Mason Murphy. Mason Murphy played Mm -hmm. left tackle in this game and against a better defense. Now, last week, Arizona defense, not very good. Not very good. Kyle's got a better defense. And uh, USC's offensive line still played really well in that game and showcasing, once again, player development. And, you know, we've seen, again, statistically, that's where you can look at it. Award-wise, that's where you can really hang your head uh, or hang your hat, excuse me, on uh, player development. And getting Mason Murphy in there and playing left tackle after playing right tackle, um, he played a pretty good game. And so that helps USC going forward when you're looking at you know, what this offense is going to look like and, and you know, what's the evolution going to be like with the offense. I'm telling you, I, I think this is a team. The one thing that they didn't do is, is run the ball in the game. And we've talked about that. They are the nation's best team running the football reluctantly. And they didn't run the game. They run the ball very much in the game. And they had Brian Jackson, a uh, four-star running back from 2024 from McKinney, Texas at the game. And they also had Taylor Tatum at the game, a four-star 2024 running backer from Longview. And so two of the top running backs in the 2024 class, two Texas guys. And I thought maybe they want to showcase the run against Cal with that. And they, you know, still once again had uh, Travis Dye ran for, oh, I think in the last three games he's run for like 6.3 yards a carry. And that's including the Utah game. Um, so they're still running the ball well. And, and certainly they're running the ball well when they need to, which was, I think, crucial for this season. Um, but uh, they're not committed to the run and they really seem like they don't want to win games running the football for whatever reason. Um, but uh, yeah, didn't utilize a tight end a whole lot. You had Walter Matthews there, six, seven, 250 pound tight end from Georgia, another 2024 kid, a guy that you saw in person. You felt like maybe he ends up growing into being an offensive tackle down the line. He is legitimately massive. And when I was looking at him, I just didn't see tight end Gerard I just saw a skinny tackle that's kind of what my because I thought he was an offensive lineman right off the bat and then I realized oh wait that's that's the tight end kid and you know just looking at him he looked to 
too big to be like a guy like a tight end, you know, not like Deuce, who's a little more, you know, uh, slim and uh, I guess twitchy in the, in that sense. Not like like McCree. Um, Looks more like you know Josh Fallow now, who Josh Fallow's put on a lot of weight. He has certainly increased his mass since when he first arrived. So he reminded me more of kind of uh, heavier Josh Fallow, uh, but a little more athletic looking. But yeah, definitely just looked like a future a guy you could say, all right, just put on you know 50 pounds, you're going to be a, a a tackle, and that's kind of the vibe I got looking at him. But you know, we'll see. But Ryan certainly a, a big boy. But certainly a big boy. Brian Jackson versus Sam Green. Who, who's bigger? <laughs> Brian Jackson versus Sam Green. Uh, Brian Jackson. What? Oh, no. <laughs> are, we, are we talking about size or like swollenness? We're talking about, yeah, like size. Like, like just, yeah, who is, who is bigger? I mean, if we're talking like if I'm picking who could let lift more, I'm going Sam Green. Right. But, you're but in terms of like size, I think Brian, Brian had a little, maybe uh, like an inch on him. See, that's and, and that's why people constantly ask us, you know, why is Sam Green not ranked higher? Why is he not ranked higher? I just think it's his size. I think that people are are doubting that he's going to be a whole lot bigger uh, than he is right now. And he's going to play on the interior and obviously 250, 260 pound defensive lineman on the interior. And not not that's not the, the profile of uh, a defensive lineman that's very dominant at the college level. And that's going to be a question going forward. Obviously, you know, people want to know from a personnel standpoint, uh, what is this defense going to look like in two years? Um, you know, I'll say something very unpopular. Okay. Coming away from the cow game. I like Alex Grinch. I like Alex Grinch. I like the way he explains himself. Uh, I, his thinking is there. His rationale is there. He reminds me a little of Tim Drevno, which a lot of people threw under the bus. I think Tim Drevno was in a weird position at USC, um, coaching in a system that he's never coached for, with before. And, you know, it just it, it was not a good setup for him. But I always felt like he was a good coach, a good offensive line coach. Not a great recruiter, but a good offensive line coach. I think Alex Grinch is a, is a decent recruiter, but I think he's also a smart guy that is very thoughtful. The biggest issue is going to be his philosophy about playing small ball because he was criticized about that at Oklahoma. And it's just not what we've seen be successful in the college football playoff. We have not seen undersized defensive linemen um, be able to really work against Alabama and Clemson and Ohio State and Michigan, et cetera. Um, That's going to be the one thing against Notre Dame, which will be interesting. Notre Dame's obviously not a, a great team this year, but that's a team that's played big boy football very recently. You know, been in the college football playoff. They still got players on that team that played in those games, and they've got size and they've got talent. They recruited well. And so while they may not be the best team executing the best right now, they still got dudes and they've got physicality up front. And obviously, USC's not where they want to be. But from a philosophical standpoint, it's one of those games that sort of, I mean, you you really got to think about whether playing small up front is really going to win out for USC. If that's going to be the the system, Um, it's not even from a scheme standpoint, it's just from a personnel selection standpoint, that's 
the best way to go for them. Yeah, I mean, I was gearing up to ask you what your thoughts were on Grinch um, because I know we did get kind of get a question about this. Like, they wanted specifically your thoughts on Alex Grinch and the scheme, if it's more so you feel on him or more so on the scheme. And I, th- I think you're, I think, th- I, I think I, we've identified what's going to be the, the talking point in the, in the thread uh, for this. Uh, when I post this is, is your, is your take on Alex Grinch. That's yeah, going to be, I, the, I, that's going to be the hot button thing on the, on I this, think, uh, I, this, this I thread. Think, I think he's a smart guy. I think he's making moves right now with his better players to try to maximize what he can get out of them. You know, that's why you're seeing Tuli Tui Polotu playing quasi linebacker position. People hate that. People hate that and dropping like Figueroa in coverage. Right. A lot of zero blitz playing with some things and they're doing it more right now, obviously than they've done. Again, I think Alex Grinch has an explanation for things. It's not coach speak. It's not one of those deals where you're talking to Neil Calloway and, you know, you've just given up five sacks a week before and you're interviewing him and you say, hey, Coach Calloway, you know, what's going on with the offensive line right now? You give up five sacks. How do you adjust? What do you talk to your players about this week to try to improve in that area of pass protection? And, and the answer is we've we just got to block harder. Okay. How do you do just gotta, that? Just, we just got a podcast better, Jordan. <laughs> we we got to be, be better on the offensive line. We got to communicate more. We got to, uh, our guys just got to, you know, we got to, we got to get our helmets on. We got to just be more physical at the point of attack. Okay. So what do you do drill wise to do that? Is there something that you're actually, you know, going to implement from a training standpoint, from a practice standpoint that allows you to do those things? You know, we just coach them up. You know, we just, we, we got to just stay focused and, and keep doing what we're doing. And, uh, and, uh, you know, it'll come together for us. It, it's, you know, you're, you're almost being insulted intelligence wise and Alex Chris doesn't do that. So maybe I have a soft spot just for a guy that's, you know, trying to be honest and sincere in his answers. But I, I do think that he's seeing things properly. It's just a matter of does his philosophy really work, you know, and his personnel, it's not really so much where you're putting the players and, and people get wrapped up in this and like, Oh my God, Tuli Polo, Tuli Polo two is, is playing. You know, 20 yards downfield, he's, he's covering guys and you're taking them off the line of scrimmage. He should be pass rushing. I mean, I agree with that. I, I agree with in those situations. It's like, okay, that's probably not the best way to use him. But at the same time, you're trying to do more with less. And I understand trying to maximize guys and, and being creative. I think there has to be a little bit of credit given there because, you know, that that can help. I mean, if you have the right players, you try to maximize and figure out different ways. And, and figure out what really works for them. You know, what what is their best? And, and the only way to do that is to move them around and try to get the best guys on the field. So, you know, I, I understand, like, the approach and why they're doing what they're doing defensively right now. But long term, and again, this is going back to what they did at Oklahoma and what he did uh, really at Washington State, playing smaller. Like, I've always understood playing smaller uh, from a defensive end linebacker standpoint, like going back to the Dallas Cowboys and you're a Dallas Cowboys fan, you probably don't go back to the Jimmy Johnson era, but they kind of changed how defenses played. They went to a 4-3 and they went to a lot of smaller, faster linebackers. They were going and getting guys and drafting guys that were six foot, maybe six one, 235, 240 pounds. And people were like, dude, you can't win with linebackers like that. They're, those guys are too small, but they were fast. 
They could get around blocks, and they made a lot of tackles for losses because of that. But this is different. You, this is a philosophy that's based on, you know, having guys that are a bit smaller, 250, 270 pounds on the defensive line. And what we've seen in college football, in the college football playoffs, is those teams getting blown off the football. So that's that's really down the line in terms of recruiting and the guys they get. It's like we know they have to get better in the front seven. They've got to get much more talented at linebacker. They've got to have some guys up front that can be difference makers, and, and they're going to have to replace Tuli Tui Pelotu. Who are the guys that they bring in? You know, is it a philosophy of, oh, we can go and get some guys that are 250, 270? And that's where you question, you know, with Sam Green, and I, and I ask you that question, he's a smaller guy. And it's like, okay, is that, is that, is that okay? Is that what we see fitting in in the future for USC? Because people would argue that's not going to get it done if you've got to play against Alabama or, or Ohio State in a playoff game. You, you, they're going to go after that guy and put their 340-pound offensive guard on him and walk him back to the inside linebacker. Yeah, I think just people were having flashbacks to when uh, Drake Jackson was downfield in coverage as well during those times. And I, and I remember you being critical of that as well, correct? Yeah, because Drake Jackson was playing that position full time. You know, he was an outside linebacker and taking time away from him rushing the ball. And I again, I totally agree with that in that respect with Thule. I think, you know, if it's a, a pass rushing down and Cal was kind of one dimensional at that point. You want him rushing the passer because he's your best pass rusher. Having him back, you're not really fooling anybody with him dropping back into the curl. Um, chance of him making a play in the passing play. And it, 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 it's all down in distance as well. If you're talking about third and nine, third and 10, is he really going to make a play that far down the field? Probably not. Zero blitzes are really more for flash plays into the curl, into the flat route, where the quarterback is forced to give the ball up early. You do not want Nick Figueroa running downfield 30 yards. And we've seen some of that. We've seen a couple of plays where those guys have gotten caught having to run way, way downfield. Even, you know, Shane Lee having to run way downfield. And so, you know, that schematically, that, that's a choice that you probably could, you could definitely argue with. But there's other things in the defense which I, I'm not so quick to jump on critically. And I understand that, again, they're trying to, uh, you know, do more with less from a talent standpoint, when you have injuries, they're also trying to make up for, you know, not having Eric Gentry there. But again, you can argue, okay, you don't have Eric Gentry there, but Eric Gentry is playing middle linebacker. Is that the position that Eric Gentry should be playing? You know, it's a personnel uh, selection issue that, that I would probably question more than, you know, where guys are lining up um, and, and how they're being used when they line up. If that makes sense. It does. And maybe you talk some people off the edge with this little uh, this little talk on Alex Grinch and the defense, Gerard. So maybe you did some good. Maybe you did some good out there for for, for the peristyle. Uh, anything else you want to jump on uh, for the recruiting angle before we uh, move on? Let's get that timestamp, baby. Friday night light schedule. Let's get that timestamp. And will you do the honors because this is your kind of baby? This is not my baby. This is oh, just okay. something that <laughs> I update for all of us because we're all going to see high school football games. Not this Friday, obviously. Yes, not me, not me, not me. But uh, the Friday night, yeah, the Friday night schedule is uh, always something we throw together, and uh, so we thought we'd share it with the fans because maybe most weeks you guys would be out there maybe seeing a high school football game. 
But um, you got Cell Point Catholic playing at Queen Creek. So you've got Eliza rushing the four-star 2024 defensive end coming up from Tucson, Arizona, which is uh, where Cell Point Catholic is from. And they're going to be playing up in the, uh, I guess, kind of sort of Phoenix era um, uh, this uh, this week. And um, like I said, I think that this is the last week before playoffs or it is the first week of playoffs. I'm not really sure with Arizona. Um, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to get out to see him uh, this week. Uh, Pinnacle's going to be playing at Centennial. Um, and that's uh, Peoria, Arizona Centennial, not Corona Centennial. I was like, so, what? <laughs> yeah, that would be a, a really good game if uh, you had a, a playoff game there uh, between Corona Centennial and Pinnacle at this point in the year. Uh, Pinnacle got a reeling, a uh, couple of losses here, so not playing up to their standard in, in previous years. Red Mountain and Jacoby Lane will be playing at Mountain View. Um, and again, I think this is the last regular season game uh, for these Arizona teams, and then they'll jump into playoffs. This is uh, the second week of CIF playoffs, and so Mission Viejo is going to be playing at Corona Centennial this weekend. That should be a really good game. Sierra Canyon is going to play at Sarah. That, again, should be also a very good game. You guys went and saw uh, Sarah um, last week or the week before. I don't think you saw Sarah last week, I think it was Shotgun and JP who actually went to the Sarah game. So Jarrett Perez uh, shot. Five stars only, team. Perez. Five stars only. He only got a uh, – he got a five-star track athlete, uh, but a four-star football player. There you in, go. And uh, Roger Pleasant. And so we put that update up already on the site. Uh, Shotgun Spratling talked a little bit to Jason Mitchell. And I think Dakota Fields, but Dakota Fields was actually injured for the game. He was in a boot. So we'll see if uh, he's going to play this week against Sierra Canyon. Uh, Los Alamitos playing Long Beach Poly at the, the big vet. one, the big, big one, game, big game, big game for uh, Los Alamitos. Uh, Might Gerard be there? Probably not. No. Okay. Not the way I'm feeling right now. No. Um, and this podcast has not made me feel better. <laughs> uh, Orange is going to be playing at uh, San Juan Hills, uh, 2025 USC commit. Uh, Jet White playing for Orange. Uh, they beat Huntington Beach last week. Modern Day is back on the docket after a bye week playing at J. Sarah. And if you remember, uh, I believe Modern Day played J. Sarah very close uh, mm-hmm. in uh, the regular season. I think it was like 21-14 game. So that'll be interesting to play in that Santa Ana Stadium. Uh, Cathedral is going up to play Pacifica in Oxnard. So Malachi Crawford seeing a, an L.A. team come up there. That'll be interesting. Hopefully, uh, maybe next week we see Pacifica playing down closer to Southern California, we can go watch Malachi Crawford play um, and don't have to make that treacherous drive of Chalkstar on a Friday night. Uh, Lutheran will be playing at St. John Bosco. That will be a blowout for Bosco. Uh, Calabasas kick, coming out here to the IE playing against uh, Riverside Ramona and Lincoln San Diego playing again at Madison this weekend. Uh, Lincoln uh, just played Madison to end the regular season. They had a bye week last week. And now they're playing Madison again. So Lincoln won that game pretty handily uh, to end the regular season. And they should probably win this game as well. I'm kind of bummed I, I won't be able to attend that Los Al Poly game. Because one, it's right up the street from me. And two, it's, a, it's just a big game. And it's a 730 game though, Chris. And you know how yeah. you love 730 games. I do love 730 games. But I'm sure we will have somebody there. Five stars only Perez. We'll see. Uh, you know, Jarrett might go down to Lincoln again. Um, we'll see. Uh, you know. We just have more options than we did last week is what we're saying. Yeah, unfortunately. Much better. 
a much yeah, better. It's not, every week is not always, you know, good matchups and, and interesting matchups. And last week you had the bye week. So you had a bunch of teams like Los Alamitos and Bali, uh, modern day that weren't even playing. So yeah, this, uh, this week, better looking games on the docket, but again, Friday night, USC hosts Colorado in the Coliseum. Chris Trevino will be there. Gerard Martinez will hopefully be feeling better and uh, we'll have uh, my voice. Uh, we, we can all hope for that. We can all hope for that. And let, let's very quickly end uh, our talking points on the a look at the college football schedule going into week 11. There's some more big games on the on the docket. You have Arizona at UCLA, Stanford at Utah, Texas A&M at Auburn, Washington at Oregon, Alabama going to Ole Miss, the Lane Train versus his old uh, head coach, employer, Nick Saban, uh, Alabama coming off that LSU loss, looking for to right itself. And then the probably the biggest matchup is TCU, suddenly a college football playoff contender, uh, going to Texas, and there will be some big uh, visitors on hand for that one, Gerard. Yeah, everybody writing off TCU, saying that uh, Texas is going to win this game. TCU's played some pretty close games, so they're kind of on the Clemson upset alert. Uh, but this is going to be an interesting game because Texas is going to host Deuce Robinson, the five-star tight end from Pinnacle High School in Phoenix, for an official visit. Everybody talking about the momentum that Georgia has with Deuce Robinson. We addressed that a little bit in the war room last week. They're also going to have Jacoby Lane there. Right now, it sounds like it might be an unofficial visit, but he does have an offer from Texas, so it could be an official visit for Jacoby Lane. So he'll be there. And Marquis Steele. You remember Marquis Steele? <laughs> Defensive lineman from Garland, Texas. What's Six the deal? 290. He is a Golden Hour recruit. He will be on an official visit to Texas. Seems like TCU, Texas. Arkansas was there for a while, but Arkansas is having an abysmal season, so it kind of seems like they're out on it. Haven't really heard very much about USC and Marcus deal in a very long time. I'm going to have to try to check in a little more with his camp, but yeah, it's been pretty quiet on the uh, Marquis deal front uh, when it comes to the defensive line. And maybe that's where USC made that pivot and they went after Dijon Lafitte and decided to, you know, go that route instead. Uh, not to say that, you know, they wouldn't take both players, but yeah, I just haven't heard a whole lot about Marquis deal with some of these guys that came during the summer that are out of state recruits being recruited by, these other programs, you would want to see them for some unofficial visits to USC. And we just really haven't seen that with quite a few of these guys. The guys that didn't commit out of the season, we haven't seen Warren, uh, Warren Roberson uh, on an unofficial visit to USC during the season. He said he was going to unofficially visit USC at the beginning of the season, but still hasn't been on campus. So that's one of those things that you keep an eye out. As I always say, uh, actions speak louder words when it comes to recruiting. That is actually a beautiful transition into our final segment, which is listener questions. And I know it was rough on the listener questions last week. There were just so many, and it took up so much of our time. But I'm trying this new thing where I'm going to sort of pick a bunch, or not a bunch, but pick a handful out every week. Uh, so I guess this is a challenge to you as a listener who submit questions to really wow me with the questions. And if you want to send us a question, you email us at podcast at uscfootball.com and make sure you put the composite, Slantra Boys, 10K, Hurricane, and Chris, whatever you want. Just make sure you do that and it'll get to my inbox. That is podcast at uscfootball.com. 
So, Gerard, I only got really two questions for you and I this week. But this question sent from Jesus would actually plays beautifully into something you just said about action speeding, speaking louder than words. Question for the two-star podcast. You guys say that actions always speak louder than words. Deuce Robinson has says multiple times in articles that he wants to go to as many SC games as possible. However, he's gone to no games. Is this the case of SC not, not going to be able to close with him? Thanks. An, an interesting, an interesting uh, observation, Gerard. A very interesting observation. I thought for some reason he did make one game unofficially, but maybe he didn't. I guess not, huh? He wasn't there for Arizona State. Elijah I would have Page seen was, him. Jacoby Lane was there. Right. And, and Elijah Page was there on an official visit. And Caleb Lomu was there. Everyone but Arizona but him. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about this before. On paper, this is one of those recruitments where USC hasn't done themselves any favors. You know, they're not throwing in the tight end very much. Uh, Georgia utilizes uh, multiple tight ends. Oregon utilizes multiple tight ends. Texas uh, utilizes the tight end pretty well. And all three of those schools have guys that have, you know, a decent amount of receptions. And I've always said, in addition to action speak louder than words, that it's easier to recruit for what you have and replacing that than what you don't. And I think USC right now is basically just recruiting Deuce Robinson to say, look, it, we, we don't got a guy like you. That's why we don't have someone at the tight end position who has 40 catches. Um, I think that you know USC this season certainly looks to be focused on trying to get the receivers the ball. I mean, that just seems like it, that's where it's going now. Is that Lincoln Riley from a, a scheme standpoint, a, a you know, X's and O's standpoint? what he's putting up on the board for install each week, or is it just what Caleb Williams is comfortable with? But even with Mario Williams and Jordan Addison out, tight ends are still not a big part of this offense. And you would think, okay, now you're getting into your, you know, your second team receivers. Maybe you start to throw the ball more to Josh Fallow or you throw the ball more to Malcolm Epps, but that's not been the case. So, you know, on paper, when you're talking about, Defending national champions, undefeated, number one in the nation. Um, you know, hey, listen, it is what it is. So uh, USC is going to keep recruiting them, and they're going to keep trying to work that relationship. I think that coaching staff at USC has a better relationship with him than the coaches at Georgia or, or, or Texas or any of these other coaches. Um, it's closer to home, which is, I think, a positive in his recruitment. Uh, baseball, however, not great at USC right now. It's sort of transitioning. Uh, with the new staff. And so, you know, there's various aspects of this, which if they lost Deuce Robinson to Georgia or Texas, you would say, all right, you know what? It is what it is. Uh, it's not one of those uh, Josh Connerly type situations where it just doesn't make sense. Um, so, yeah. Well, there you go. 10K has spoken. Uh, and our last question God, it feels so good to say that after just two questions, Gerard. I cannot stress. Uh, comes from Mark. Hurricane and 10K. I believe that you previously said that Lincoln Riley has re reorganized his staff where they each are responsible for recruiting a geographic area versus the gumbo of the previous staff. I believe that some colleges approach recruiting where assistants recruit their position regardless of location. After about a year of this format, 
What do you hear from recruits and high school coaches about this approach versus how other competing colleges approach the recruitment uh, mark? And this feels like it kind of boils down, Gerard, to recruiting by position versus recruiting by uh, geographic location. Um, as someone you have have covered, you know, multiple recruiting staffs, do you feel like there's one is better than the other one uh, approach? Yeah, I think recruiting by territory is is superior mm. strategically because it allows your coaches to have better connections that last longer. And sometimes that's really the difference between a good evaluation and a bad evaluation. If you've got people that you trust in an area because you've been there for a long time and you've developed those networking sources, they can tell you, hey, this dude's under this this dude's underrated. Hey, this dude's overrated. This guy is a little bit of a shitbird behind the scenes. He's he's not a good player uh, from the standpoint of a of, of in the locker room. He's not a good teammate. Um, you can get a lot of of info when you're trying to figure out who's who, uh, particularly out of state. Um, at some point, you know, you're going to transition to the position coach, but you also have a champion on the staff that can talk up your position coach at that point. He doesn't come in there cold and try to recruit an area where he doesn't know anybody. You know, he's just trying to develop relationships. You're trying to figure out who's the champion in this recruit circle. Is it the coach at the school? Is it some trainer, some seven-on coach? Is it the mom? Is it the stepdad? Is it the god uncle? Who's the one that has this recruit's ear when it's signing day and that fax has got to come in? Who's going to pick up our phone call and who's going to give it to this kid if we can't get a hold of him directly? Who's going to be the one that says, hey, you know what? I I think you should go here. Um, And that really matters to that particular recruit. And so to have that information, I I think when you have people that have just recruited an area for a, a long time, they're probably going to be able to get that information better. And like I said, when it comes time to transition, because it's very important for a a player to have a relationship with their position coach, that's who's going to be coaching them, right? Okay, that makes sense. I understand that. But now you can have that coach who may not be the position coach, right? Let's uh, Let's say it's Kyle McDonald, and he's recruiting the Northwest, okay? And he's in Seattle. And he's recruiting an offensive lineman and he's got people there in the Northwest. He knows people and, and, and he's able to kind of, you know, filter out the, the, the guys that are, you know, the, the, the four-star guys that are really overrated and the coaches in that area that have played against that player are like, yeah, man, this guy, I don't know why 24 seven has him as a four-star, you know, no offense to, Brand, uh, to Brandon Huffman. We love Brandon, but this is just an example. Coaches in that area are like, yeah, that guy's overrated. He, he's, he, you know, he, he's, he's not physical enough. You know, he's, he's, he's just, he's, he's a lightweight. He looks good. He's got the frame and everything. Uh, but the kids just, you know, I can't say that word, but beep. Um, and so, you know, he's soft. Yeah, he's soft. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, uh, Kyle McDonald comes back and he's like, yeah, well, we want to recruit this other dude. There's, there's another kid there. There's actually a three star, but you know, I got a coaching buddy in the area. He says, this, this guy's outplayed him. Let's go look at his film. We watch his film. Sit down with Coach Hanson. Coach Hanson says, "Damn, I like this guy. This, this, this is. We should recruit this guy harder." So Kyle McDonald is is making those calls, and Kyle McDonald says, "Hey, you know he's got he's he's, he's good with the coaches. He's good with the seven ons in there. He gets that number. 
he, you know, he's able to just get in there and talk to the kid, talk him up, say, hey, you know, I'm Kyle McDonald and, uh, you know, USC, we want to offer you a scholarship. Hey, I want to introduce you to one of the best offensive line coaches in the nation. This guy, we work hand in hand together. I tell you, I've been on a lot of coaching staffs, but I think it's amazing to have an offensive coordinator as an offensive line coach. He really gets it. He really understands how to develop his players and to get his guys ready for the next level. This is Josh Henson. And, and you're able to take that trust that maybe Kyle McDonald has in that area, and he parlays that into some credibility for Josh Henson before Josh Henson ever even picks up the phone. That's why you recruit territory. That's why it's important. When you just send your guys into areas because they recruit that position and coach that position, it's like, you know, they're kind of going blind a little bit. It's like, hey, we like this guy on film. And so, hey, coach, I want to come down there and I'm going to check out your high school. And the coach is like, yeah, sure, come on down. But he doesn't know anybody. He, he doesn't know the head coach at that school. He doesn't know any other coaches in the area. He, he's just there. And he's, and he's, it's just, it's, it's a little almost awkward to some extent. And you know, you're, you're like, Hey, this is the position I'm, co- I'm going to be your guy. I'm going to, I'm going to coach you through four years of, of college and I want to have a great relationship with you. And, and it can work sometimes, but I think it's harder. I think it's more difficult. So yeah, I've always been of the opinion. You want your guys out there territorially work in the area just knowing, you know, what's what, and then being able to bring that info back and and then you recruit from there. Off the top of your head, is there like a USC coach that you've covered or that was just like the best area recruiter you've covered? Like Coach X is just, just dominates uh, Utah or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, shoot. I mean, T. Martin, who wasn't from uh california was a was a pretty dominant recruiter mm-hmm. at sarah uh, that's just because t martin is an elite recruiter I mean, that's just you know i mean he and dante and guys like that you can put them anywhere and, and have them recruit any position and they're probably going to be pretty good at it i will tell you one kind of funny story and i think i've told this before maybe maybe not is um when lane kiffin took over as head coach at usc and um at tennessee he had Marquise Ambles, a receiver from Georgia, committed. Now, Marquise Ambles, I had spoken to at the uh, U.S. Army underclassman combine the year before. And he talked to me about how he liked USC. He was really interested in USC. And so time went on, and um, USC didn't really recruit him very often. You know, they kind of were like, eh, we got other guys we like better. And, um, and so Lane comes aboard. And Lane's like, we got we to gotta get Marquise to come into USC. And so Todd McNair was still on the coaching staff at that point. And so <laughs> Lane's like, Todd, you, co- you, you recruit Georgia. Go down to Georgia and, uh, you know, get an in-home with Marquise. We, we, want, we want him to, to come to USC. And I, I think, you know, we got a good shot at him. And Todd's like, well, <laughs> he's like, I, I stopped recruiting this dude in, in like April. And, and and Todd, you know, how do I put this? Todd had really good, he had really good connections at the high schools in that area. And he knew that Marquise was, he was not necessarily spoken highly of behind the scenes. Just in terms of, again, being a teammate, character issues, there was stuff there. And <laughs> Todd was like, reluctantly has to go back there and re-recruit a guy that he'd wiped his hands off of. He was like, nah, we went there in May. We saw him. He's like, nah, talk to my people down there. And they, they, they said, nah, man, go, 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 go find another receiver. And so he had to go back there 
And uh, they ended up getting him committed because Lane, you know, Lane really pushed it. And Lane was uh, really a receivers coach first and foremost. And so, you know, Lane made it happen despite Todd kind of like feeling like not so great about that and feeling like, do we really want to go and recruit this dude? But Lane, but you know, he was a five-star at that point. And Lane was like, dude, I'm, I, I mean, I remember Lane even telling me flat out, like, we're going to get the number one recruiting class. Like we're going to get the number one recruiting class. We're going to do it. We're going to make it happen. And they went so far as to pick up a couple of Juco guys, I think in that class um, <laughs> that, you know, probably weren't going to make it, but it just looked good on, on, on the commit list. And it bumped USC, I think that year, the number one class. So yeah, um, it was a very interesting transition, but that was one of those situations where, you know, Todd knew that Marquis Ambles was probably not going to work out. And they made that evaluation early on and they were right on it. I mean, Marquis Ambles, I don't even remember what he did at USC. I remember he transferred, but I don't remember him really playing at USC. And um, for whatever reason, you know, he, he, he transferred out, but uh, yeah, Lane was like, uh, he had him committed at Tennessee and was like, let's, 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 let's get him committed here in USC and completely, completely stopped recruiting him in April. Like, like, Stop recruiting him to the point where he, I think he was still calling USC and they weren't picking up the phone. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, yeah, oh, no. it was it was a little awkward. And another famous example, until it wasn't, was Johnny Nansen in Hawaii. Johnny Nansen in Hawaii, but Johnny kind of went after uh, some low hanging fruit in Hawaii too. So I, I don't know, like I don't know if I would ever say he was dominant in Hawaii. Um, they'd always go after Hawaii and they'd go and get guys kind of like Jordan Hiasefa and, and, and some players kind of under the radar, but you know, they didn't get like all the top guys, uh, in Utah or, or any of those other places. So I don't know if I would say that they got Jay Tufele. Yeah, they got Jay Tufele. Um, I'm trying to think of any other coaches that really were dominant in the area. I mean, Ken Norton Jr. recruited Texas for USC. They got some guys, um, you know, Michael Morgan and uh, Manuel Moody and a few other guys. Um, uh, I mean, Todd was also really good in New Jersey because they got Brian Cushing and they got Dwayne Jarrett. And uh, Lane has to get, you know, some credit for Dwayne Jarrett as well. Uh, but, um, you know, Todd had, had, had kind of had a good thing going there in New Jersey, they got Antoine uh, Perez, who ended up at Maryland. We talked about him in the past. Um, so, you know, he was he was pretty good there, too. Never really anybody that was, like, super plugged into Florida or super plugged into any place. I'm just at the top of my head. I can't remember, like, uh, just, like, dominating an area. It's not – you really don't want to dominate an area. You just want to cherry pick. You want to have, like, every couple classes, there's a guy that's going to come out, come out of that area. It's a good area. It's, you know, New Jersey, it's the DMV, it's Houston, it's South Florida, wherever, you know, um, USC had a, a nice little run there. They had a couple guys that they got out of Tampa. Why was that? Lane Kiffin and his relationship with Monty Kiffin. And Monty Kiffin was a freaking celebrity legend in Tampa. So he could parlay that and, and get in uh, for, for, you know, Berkeley prep, uh, Nelson Aguilar. Like that was all Lane and Monty working because they, they knew that staff at the at the high school and they had built that relationship over years so that that really matters is, is relationships and it's hard to do that when you're just a position coach and you just float in there and you've never really recruited that particular 
area. You know, you never been to Miami. You never been to this place or that place. There you go. We turned a good question into some stories, which I know uh, fans of this podcast love hearing from you, Gerard. And that's it. That's all I got for you. That those are all the questions. So that we've officially reached the end of this podcast. Well, I've officially reached the end of my voice. I'm straining to talk. So yeah. So <laughs> I'm I'm just good gonna. Timing. You don't have to talk anymore. You're done. You can leave right now. It doesn't matter. You can hang up. The Skype call. It doesn't matter. Hey, I, I, this is this is not Ole Miss Tulsa. This is not Cal U. I'm staying here to the very end, baby. Okay. We're closing this one out. We're okay. I, I can hear out. it in your voice how how destroyed yeah. you are. But thank you again for for tuning in to another episode of Composite Two Star Recruits. Uh, we'll see if having a shorter episode this week because we've done a three hour one the week before. Or last week, and then uh, about two fifty-seven the week before that. You know, USC had two twenty. We did. We did. Somebody did the math. Two twenty was a sweet spot. And I think we're right about two twenty. So we'll see if that that yields itself to this weekend's <laughs> score. But it it is a little bit slanted because it is Colorado, the <laughs> worst team in the Pac-12, maybe one of the worst, and, and is one of the worst teams in the nation. So it's a little bit slanted. So I don't think we'll get a full measure of the power of the length of this podcast but we, we shall see we're just, we still we're, we're, we'll, we'll still take it we'll, we'll take the low-hanging fruit so with that i am chris that is gerard and we will catch you next time on composite two-star recruits that leopard sucks